Sound Off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen, brings you in-depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, it's Friday, September the 4th. You are listening to Q, the podcast. I'm Talia Schlanger in for Tom Power. Have you been watching Canada's Drag Race? This is the competition series that is based on RuPaul's Drag Race, which aired in the States. Last night, they crowned the first ever Canadian drag superstar. It was super exciting. I am going to be talking to the winner in just a moment. And I don't want to spoil it for you in case you don't know who it is yet. But suffice it to say, I am so thrilled she won. And she has a really beautiful and and deep story about bringing two lives that she said she was living together on television in front of everyone. So stick around for the winner of Canada's Drag Race. Also, we've got our cue This Music panel to talk about a really big moment for the South Korean pop band BTS. They made music history this week. And we're going to talk about whether this is a sign that the doors of North American pop are finally starting to open wider for Asian artists. And if so... Why has it taken so long? A Harmony and Lisa Christensen will be here to talk about it. Also, this week on the show, we've been talking a lot about the death of Chadwick Boseman, um, who you might know best from the movie Black Panther. He died of colon cancer last week at the age of 43. His last movie is on the way. It's this Netflix movie called Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And if you don't know who Ma Rainey is, she is an absolute legend, trailblazer of the blues. So we have got Alana Bridgewater herself a legendary singer, really incredible performer to introduce you to Ma Rainey, introduce you to uh, her music and to her story coming up. And we'll close it off by looking back at Tom Power's conversation with poet Kaveh Akbar, poet and a poetry professor. He will read you some of his poetry and you will never look at your salad spinner the same way again. Show starts now. RuPaul's Drag Race has just ended its first ever Canadian season. The show is called Canada's Drag Race. If you haven't seen the series, it puts a group of drag queens through fierce competitions and high-stake runway walks. They're all vying for the chance to be crowned Canada's first drag superstar. And last night, the first ever winner of Canada's Drag Race was triumphantly declared. You ready? Spoilers ahead. The first ever winner of Canada's Drag Race is Priyanka. Hello. I'm so pleased to say Priyanka joins me now live. Welcome to Q. And as they say on the show, congratulations. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. <laughs> Talia, we did it. <laughs> you did we it. You get to split $100,000. What are you going to buy? <gasps> what are you going to buy? Oh, my gosh. I have no idea. I don't know. How do I get to look like you? Something that helps me do that. Can you believe I got up at 6 a.m. today to do all this makeup? You look gorgeous. You look absolutely gorgeous. For those of you who are listening, I look like a goddess. So thank you. (laughs) She really does. She (laughs) does. I'm so excited. This is a really big deal. This is like, this is herstory. This is history. This is is like, I'm a a Canadian heritage moment now. You are. You're a Canadian icon. (laughs) So take me back to the moment that we all got to see on TV last night where Brooklyn Heights comes out, hands you this, this scepter. You are crowned. What was going through your mind at that moment? It felt surreal, but it felt right. Mm. I love competitions more than anything in the world. And I love to get better during them because I love to take notes and apply them to the next challenge. And when they said, and the winner is, what's her name? I said, you learned and you, you're, you, you, you grew up a little bit here. What's next? Where's my next <laughs> crown? What else is new? It honestly feels so surreal. And also, like Brooklyn Heights. I know Brooklyn Heights is for people listening is is one of the judges and an absolute drag icon who was on a previous season of RuPaul's Drag yeah, Race. Yeah, she was the first ever Canadian to yes. ever be on any season of RuPaul's Drag Race, and she completely killed her season. She was incredible, and then even in Toronto before Drag Race, she was like. 
she would walk into a room and it was like a thousand like little fairy lights just like kind of like around her. She is like the one. You're so not lying. She, I've seen her in Toronto. And you? I, yeah, absolutely. You get it. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. You get it. When she handed me the scepter, I was like, can I have a picture with you too, please? <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> somebody, was, somebody was filming it. So I think you're okay. <laughs> but, <laughs> so as you said, I mean, this is his, this is her story. This is history. This is a big Canadian yeah. deal. There were 12 original seasons of the show in the U.S. There's a, a U.K. version. Does it feel like a responsibility to you to be representing Canada as the first Canadian winner? Canada is such a beautiful place. You have to agree. Yeah, of course. And, you know, I think that we're so lucky to live in a country where being gay is so accepted. I know there's still some spots that need some work. There's still some conservative areas that need some work. But I am so proud to be able to walk down the street in full drag and everyone be like, hey, Priyanka. Or the guy at the gas station's like, oh, you're the drag race girl. Like, it's so accepted. So to be able to win in my country, but also be seen in uh, all over the world to be like, oh, if they're if they're so accepted over there, then we should be more accepting over here. It's just it's continuing to normalize this thing that is like, although I'm a weirdo, it's normal. It's normal to be gay. My goal is to stop people from having to come out of the closet. Why do you have to tell people you're gay? Just be yourself. Mm. Who cares? Yeah, I know it was important. Would you agree? I completely. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. I know it was important to you to represent Canada, but also to represent your own personal heritage, even in terms of the name that you chose. And you said on the finale episode that there's a very specific reason that you chose the name Priyanka, and that you repeated throughout throughout the series. What's my yeah. name? So, so tell exactly. me about tell me about choosing that name for yourself. So my mom named me Mark and my brothers are Steve, Mike and Chris. Mm -hmm. So she gave us all white people names because she didn't want us to get bullied in school. My mom's my mom came from Guyana. So she has like three names. So she has her birth name is Chameli, which is gorgeous. Her work name to fit in with the white people was Christine. And then her family calls her Shoba. So I was sitting here like, no, I have a white boy name. And now I get to be this drag queen that gets to represent all these people. So that's why I chose the name Priyanka, because I wanted to normalize someone with uh, an Indian name winning something. It doesn't always have to be Bob, Rick and Tom winning the crown. It could be Priyanka. (laughs) (laughs) Big time. Tell us a little bit about your journey from Mark to Priyanka. I know you've just been doing drag for over two years. Um, How did you land? How did you land on Canada's on Canada's drag race? So I, so now it's been three years, okay. believe it or not. Three is my favorite number. And this is also my third crown. Uh. And the finale was on <laughs> September 3rd. What? So and maybe one number. day I'll have three children. Who knows? Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> um, the journey was crazy. So I used to be a kids TV host. And then I... I was trying to search for like, what what else is there? I'm on camera talking about bubble guppies. What else can I do to just extend my creativity onto something? And that's the cool thing about drag is you have a stage to do whatever you want to do and make people happy. And whenever you're in a studio, you know, you kind of talk to the wall a a little bit. And although it's fun and sometimes you get like a little bit of feedback here and there about how how you've inspired people, it's not as grand as being on stage, dancing to Beyonce while somebody that just went through a breakup is watching you escaping. Hmm. It's incredible. Absolutely. It's an art. It's an incredible art form. Like it's been so beautiful to watch, watch it be respected and heralded as an art form. You're creating your own costumes. You're creating looks. You're creating characters. It's, it's so creative. Mm-hmm. Um, so you talked a little bit about leading this double life, I guess, as a kids show host um, and as a drag queen. And I want to play a clip of you talking about this from the show. Have a listen. Because at home, I had my day job when I was talking about SpongeBob SquarePants and then coming home, eating a quick dinner and then turning into Priyanka. So there were those two clear different worlds that I was in. I called myself the Hannah Montana of Canada. (laughs) I purposely had two Instagrams and kept it so separate. And at the time, I was so okay with it. But looking back, I'm like, now why would you go and do that? Here in the Drag Race playground, I got to be both versions of myself in one place. Priyanka uh, is the winner wow. of Canada's Drag Race. You're nodding <laughs> along as we're listening to that. Um, what does it feel like to have brought those two parts of yourself together in such a public way? Hearing me talk about it, it's like a, like reading a diary entry. It's like you did it. Like we all have so many goals and we all learn so many life lessons. And I'm like, you know what? You went and did the thing and now someone can see what you did and not have to live a double life anymore. Yeah. Stop doing it. Just just. Just, just be out 
I know you're scared of the repercussions, but like, I just feel so fulfilled now. I never thought I would feel this fulfilled. I'm so happy for you. Um, and I hope it's okay to ask you about this. You, you said in the show that you were scared to come out to your father because you were scared that he would hate you. And he's from Guyana. You just mentioned a moment ago that your mom is from Guyana. I think it's illegal mm-hmm. to be, it's illegal to be homosexual in Guyana. Maybe I think the only country in South America where, where it's still illegal, um, did you get to and, and you came out to your dad on the show, uh, I think. Right. Yeah. So, w- so what was that like? Did you speak like did you call him after the episode aired? What happened? Yeah. So I told him. So the, the, the cast photos of all of us came out. You know, I'm on the show. I'm Priyanka. Woo. It was the first time that I got to post on my boy account that I am doing drag and this is me and this, I'm so happy. Hmm. Uh, my dad has been so supportive, but still quiet. And he's still a little bit weary of it because he's still understanding it, but I'm happy to give him the time to learn and let it digest and let it sizzle. You know, my mom is the coolest person in the world, but when I came out to her years ago, her first question was, this doesn't mean that you dress up in women's clothing, does it? Oh, wow. I mean, at the time I wasn't doing drag, but at the time it was, it's just so funny. Like my mom being so accepting, my mom being so cool, even she needed to be educated about, you know, the gay community and lesbians and trans people too, because like a lot of people just don't think about it. They, they just think what they see on TV. Like a lot of people think that like being gay is like a nightclub with loud club music and hookups and all this stuff. And, and sometimes it is, but it does, it doesn't have to be that. I think that like also people need to realize that we're born this way. And, and my mom, it took her a while to, to know it too. And she was front row center at my viewing party last night. Mm. And she was just, you know, cause it, it took her all, all those years to, to understand it. I think it's important to re- remember that we're all human, no matter, you know, e- even if there are our, our authority figures, it's important for us to let them have the time to learn. Yeah. Do you think they're real proud of you? I think they are like over the moon. I think that they can't believe that I'm their son. Mm. That's what my mom said last night. She was like, I just like can't believe that like I gave birth to you and and this little kid who ran around the house is now just inspiring other people. It's like, it means the world to her. But she she said, I can't touch the $100,000. So we're going to see where that money's going to go. Oh, okay. That's a good mom. (laughs) We're going to put it in a savings account for when you're you're older. Very that. (laughs) Very good. I want to play a clip from one of the more quintessential Canadian moments on this season. Okay. Here we go. I've changed my mind. Shantae, you stay. You all stay and vote. And that's the story of how drag queens won the right to vote. (laughs) And more importantly, how we all got boyfriends and learned how to smile. A part of our heritage. What did we just hear there? And how did how that did that is so funny? <laughs> what did we just so hear? So what y'all just heard was our episode two acting challenge. We were paying tribute to the classic Canadian heritage moments. We call them Canadian heritage moments. And that that was the cool thing about this show is that they hid all these little Canadian nuggets. Like for example, when we did um, the reading challenge, the reading challenge comes from a iconic documentary about the ballroom scene called Paris is Burning. But when Brooklyn said it, she says, Paris, Ontario is burning. (laughs) It's just all those little nods to Canada, which is so cool. And also like educated the world about it, you know, or even when we had our our, uh, recycled materials uh, design challenge, RuPaul said, reduce, reuse, Regina. I was like, what is happening? <laughs> so RuPaul was a tiny little part of the was a tiny little part of the show, I but know. but wasn't a host or a judge. How did and, and I like RuPaul is such a huge draw for fans of the original series. How did you feel uh-huh. about not having RuPaul as as a judge? So what's crazy is that like his spirit was always there. Ah, cool. So it was like always like RuPaul is watching you, so you didn't know what to do. And then on the final episode, when we're looking up at the screen and he was like Scarlett Bobo, Rita Bega, Priyanka. I was like, did he just say my name right now? Did, did RuPaul just say my name? It felt, it felt, it felt so cool. I think for the audience, they had a hard time adjusting to it because they had to build their trust with Stacey, Jeffrey, and Brooklyn. But towards the end of the season, they know they know who who wore it well the best because they chose me to be the winner. So you can't be mad at that, right? <laughs> why do you think you do? You have any thoughts on why you thought why you think you won? Okay, so I've been I've been dissecting this. Mm-hmm. I've been thinking about this. 
I think, no. I know that I won because I'm an icon. Simple. Spoken like a true icon. You don't know. Like, that's Talia, it. Yeah. Did you see? Did you see that finale dress? Listen. You, did you, okay. Tell me your thoughts. What was what was the reaction? Give me a. I mean, you're a vision. You're a vision. That's all I have to say. You're a vision. I mean, do you want to describe it for people? You're wearing this like this incredible wow lace wow long yes. like you. I don't I, Bollywood extra. I was that's I was it. like. I was walking down the runway. It was Bollywood extravaganza. I remember walking out and the camera guy draw was dropped. I felt so (laughs) beautiful. I felt so beautiful. And drag is all about representing something. Like, what do you bring that's unique that can make somebody else feel accepted? And that was that. That was the moment. And that's that's why I won. What, What do you what do you hope the show will do for local drag scenes across the country? They are all going to step it up because everybody wants to be on Drag Race. And I'm excited because now it's always going to be a competition. My favorite. Yeah, I love it. Okay, so a huge draw of the show is being able to sit and dissect it with your friends. It's something that people like to talk about immediately after watching it. Will you dish with me just like a little bit of rapid fire um, of things I'm sure people want to know from the winner? Who had the best lip sync performance this year? Me. <laughs> I drove all night. I drove oh, yes. all night. Celine Dion classic. Yeah. Celine Dion classic. Yeah. When I tell you the wedding dress flew off the stage and there was can can kick splits cartwheels, I was I still watch it every single day to remind myself that I'm okay. I love it. When I have those moments of insecurity, I'm like, you'll be okay, girl. Don't You're- don't you worry. Don't you worry. <laughs> <laughs> Who went home too soon? Juicebox. Mm. Juicebox was the first queen to sashay away. And I think that it sucks being sent home on a design challenge in episode one because you don't get to show your drag. You yep. know? Yep, yep, yep. Who was your favorite? Oh, I feel bad. Who was your favorite guest judge? Deborah Cox. I'm so excited. She was incredible. <laughs> I love it. So my last question, I guess, for you is in, in the finale episode, you said um, to the kids who are watching – because you used to be, for people who might have missed this a moment ago, you were a kid's TV show host. You said, to the kids who are watching, I know you used to watch me somewhere else, but now I'm home. What would you <laughs> want to say to kids um, about the journey of, of finding finding your way home? I think that it's important for everyone to know that we're all trying to find our home. And once you find it, you truly won the game of life. <laughs> Beautifully said. I'm so happy that you won, Priyanka, and can't wait to can't wait to see where you go next. Thank you. You have the most calming voice ever. I want you to be my therapist. <gasps> oh my goodness! I want you to like be my alarm clock in the morning. I want you to be my Siri and my phone. Tally, you are so beautiful and gorgeous. I lo- I'm a huge fan. You're sweet. I you want you to so good. I want you to be my style coach. So I think we can work out a partnership. Let's work out a partnership. Okay. We have to steal the hundred thousand dollars back from my mom, and so we could divvy up some money, and then we'll and then we'll, we'll be in business. We're gonna take over the world. Okay, I'm gonna go host the rest of this radio show, but then okay, we'll talk yeah, about it. You. Priyanka, okay. thank you so much, and congratulations. Bye. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> Priyanka was crowned Canada's first Drag Race winner last night. The entire season is available to stream now on Crave. I'm Talia Schlanger in for Tom Power, and here are some stories we're watching today. A case of coronavirus has hit Gotham City. Filming for the latest Batman movie is on pause. Just days after the production got started again, Warner Brothers didn't say who on the set tested positive. uh, But according to multiple reports, it is the Batman himself. Lead actor Robert Pattinson is isolating, as is the rest of the crew. The new film, The Batman, was supposed to hit theaters this summer. It has now been delayed until October 2021. And mysterious posts are popping up on the late Gord Downey's Twitter feed. The feed of the tragically hip frontman had been inactive for a year. Suddenly this week, two cryptic photos were shared. Both photos show handwritten lyrics, and it seems like there's a countdown on the posts pointing to October 15th. Recently, the hip have been planning some archival projects, so mark your calendar. Maybe this is the first tease for those projects. Who knows? And I got a question for you. How eager have you been to get back into theaters and see a movie? One Canadian man was so excited he has decided to break a Guinness World Record in the process. Craig Sharp from Manitoba is trying to see the movie Tenet in theaters. 
120 times. And to break the record, he's got to do it during the movie's first run. The current world record is 108 times. That was for Bohemian Rhapsody. Craig Sharp has a long way to go. He's seen Tenet 19 times so far. 101 more times, times a movie that's two and a half hours long. 250, two and a half hours, basically a day in lockdown. Uh, We wish him a lot of luck. That's a bit of Dynamite, the brand new single from the K-pop band BTS off their upcoming album. And this week, according to Billboard's Hot 100 Singles Chart, that song became the biggest selling song in the United States. It's also made BTS the first all-South Korean act to top Billboard's Hot 100 with an English-language single. Impressive, right? Of course it's impressive. But it is just one more item in a long list of historic achievements BTS has got under their belts these past few years. So what does all this say about the future of K-pop in the North American market? Our Cue This music panel is here to get into it. A Harmony is a freelance music journalist and critic, and Lisa Christensen is an arts reporter and producer with CBC's On the Coast. She's in Vancouver. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. Hey. BTS Oh, yeah. (laughs) Thanks for joining. Hey, so Lisa, let's start with you. BTS said that they wanted the song Dynamite to convey positive vibes, energy, hope, love, and purity. We just heard a little bit of the song. Does it sound like they pulled it off to you? Um, I already have in my head because ah, ah, ah. I'm in the stars tonight. So, yeah, I mean, I fall for like a, a pop song every summer. I know we've only got a few more weeks, but I think I can manage this one. It was it was quite perfect for a summer pop song. They hit it. Harmony, what do you think? I agree with Lisa. I think it uh, they did a great job. It's bubbly. It has this really infectious four on the floor beat that just it's made for dancing. And there's an earworm of a chorus that I bet will be stuck in all of our heads for hours. Absolutely. So Lisa, I mentioned this being just one of many historic moments for BTS in recent years. Just a few of the other standout achievements the band has had in the U.S. Would you tell us? Yeah, there are a lot. So um, five Korean language albums have reached the Billboard's you know top two hundred. Uh, with four of them coming from BTS. So Map of the Soul, it's their fourth number one album, fourth in a row. Uh, they made their big debut on the MTV Video Music Awards. They took home a bunch. And now technically this is not in the U.S., I get it, but last year they did. Uh, uh, they were the first South Korean group to headline Wembley Stadium in England. They sold out two nights. And just to give you a sense to me always of the pervasiveness of Western culture, they did a Freddie Mercury AO for the crowd because they love him so much. And gee, I think we can extend that as well. <laughs> Big time. So Harmony, I, I know I definitely get why this is a number. This number one is a big win for BTS and, and for K-pop fans. And sometimes when stuff like this happens, we hear entertainment industries congratulating themselves on these historic firsts. Um, but some people would say it's these same industries that have kept Asian artists from achieving that kind of success in the first place. How do you see it? Yeah, and in some way, it does certainly seem absurd to be celebrating these kind of firsts in 2020. It's wonderful uh, that BTS is celebrating this accomplishment, and they should. But this is not a win for the North American music industry, in my mind. This is an opportunity for execs in this corner of the globe to ask themselves why K-pop, which is a $5 billion global industry, uh, why it's taken so long for a South Korean act to top the Billboard Hot 100, with that being the case. I happen to look at a random uh, gown music chart from 2017. This is South Korea's answer to the Billboard chart. And the artists in the top 10 that year included Ed Sheeran, Idina Menzel, Adele, Sam Smith, even Canada's own Justin Bieber. So artists from the global West are topping music charts worldwide with no issue. But it's like, why is that crossover success only flowing in one direction? Hmm. Lisa, any thoughts on, on, on that crossover success only flowing in one direction? Um, yeah, probably now you bring up another boy band there, One Direction. Anyway, uh, yeah, it, it is. <laughs> it is. It's terrible. It, it really is. I mean, this is not the first time we've all heard of K-pop. In fact, uh, when I was looking around, 
Um, the first known use of the term K-pop was on Billboard in, get this, October 9th, 1999. Wow. That's when people started, yeah, that's when we sort of started, like, noticing something else was happening. And, uh, yeah, I mean, come on, everyone. You like, you know, like handsome boys in nice suits dancing. This is the same thing. So, yeah, it is quite remarkable that uh, there's no celebrating. I agree. Stop celebrating, except for BTS. They can celebrate. <laughs> uh, Harmony, do you, do you see BTS's rise right now as a, as a win for handsome boys in nice suits uh, <laughs> dancing all, all, all over the place? And in other words, for, for K-pop bands trying to break into the North American pop market? Or, or is this unique to BTS and only BTS? So... BTS's success is tremendous, but I don't think they're necessarily a one-off. If you remember back to 2017, Psy had nearly the same amount of chart success on the Billboard Hot 100. He peaked at number two with his song Gangnam Style. Sure. And, the newly formed super, and then there's the newly formed supergroup uh, Super M. They entered the Billboard 200 chart uh, at number one last year with their debut EP. So there are some signs that K-pop's global reach is finally being reflected on the Billboard charts. I wonder, though, what K-pop K-pop artists might have to do to see continued chart success in North America. Psy and BTS both collaborated with uh, North American artists like Snoop Dogg, uh, Halsey, Nicki Minaj. And now BTS has this number one song on the Hot 100 that's an English language song. So whether or not K-pop acts will have to follow suit in order to sell here remains to be seen. Right. If you're just joining us, this is Q. I am Talia Schlanger. This is the Q This Music Panel, Lisa Christensen and A Harmony. And we are going to switch gears with a little bit of this. That's Adele with her big single, Rolling in the Deep, one of the many songs that have made her one of the most successful pop acts in the world. And while Adele's rise to pop icon status has been fairly free of drama and controversy, actually pretty impressive. Um, earlier this week, Adele, <laughs> Adele found herself at the center of a pretty polarizing online debate. It was all thanks to a picture Adele posted on her Instagram account. If you haven't seen it in the picture, Adele is wearing a bikini top with Jamaican flags and her hair is styled in Bantu knots. Uh, Bantu knots have been a traditional hairstyle staple for black women for centuries and one that black women have endured a long history of persecution for wearing, uh, which is why Adele's pick has reignited the ongoing debate around cultural appropriation and whether there is a right or wrong way for non-black women, particularly ones with immense power and celebrity, to show their appreciation for these traditions. Uh, Harmony, what was your initial reaction when you saw the Adele pick? Uh, you know, so white women appropriating different aspects of black culture isn't new. So I didn't have a visceral political reaction to it. I'm kind of exhausted with that. I just don't think she looked good in the picture. The bra top and the pants didn't match. It's true. I mean, like the, the top and the pants were completely different patterns. They didn't match. The colors clashed. The hairstyle didn't look good on her. It just wasn't a flattering photo. So you got more more of a fashion objection to this to this uh, to this look. Yeah, That's really was, funny. It was fashion don'ts don'ts up and down. Oh, my goodness. Lisa, what about you? Yeah, well, I'm going to agree with that assessment, too. In fact, if you look through uh, Adele's Instagram, it's been kind of miss a lot recently. Um, and, uh, yeah, this this kind of goes to it. I have to agree. I mean, yeah, surprised, uh, no um, disappointed, as always, you know. Um, you would think that at this point it would be better understood not to do this, but... Um, no, uh, that would not be the case. So, yeah, I have to agree. Um, it's rather disappointing, I have to say. Right. So, Harmony, can you tell us a little bit about the circumstances that might have inspired Adele to post this picture in the first place? Yeah, so Notting Hill Carnival, which is an annual celebration of West Indian culture, similar to Carabana or the Toronto Caribbean Carnival, uh, was to have taken place in London last weekend, but it was cancelled, or at least the in-person portion of it was cancelled due to the coronavirus pandemic. So it seems as though Adele was paying homage to Carnival in her photo, dressing up in what she might have worn if she attended the festivities in person. Right. And Lisa, the, the, she grew up with this culture being a part of her lived experience, right? Does that does that do you think that gives her any special sort of I guess license to celebrate it in this way? I'm guessing at one point white women thought that. Um I think we know better uh, now or at least we should. I mean, I think um you know, um I I spend a lot of time thinking about this and considering it. Um I'm surprised Adele hasn't, I'm, you know, and and I think that um 
it is, uh, you know, 2020, it's, a, it's time to do a lot better. And, um, you know, let's, let's, let's like to think Adele's um, spending some time working on whatever it is, 30, 31, 32, I don't know what the album's going to be. Um, but, you know, and she's got some time to, to rethink this whole situation now, too. Mm-hmm. We all have lots of time to think about a lot of things right now, I think. <laughs> we do. Um, so, Harmony, this is not a new thing. As, as you mentioned uh, a little bit earlier, we, we've seen this over the years. I'm thinking of celebrities like Kim Kardashian, Miley Cyrus, Gwen Stefani, Katy Perry. Um, but for those people who might need a refresher on why this is such a contentious issue, what is usually at the core of criticism of non-black celebrities styling themselves with the looks of black people and particularly with the looks of of black women? I think at the core of these uh, criticisms, it's always the issue of erasure and hypocrisy. Uh, The artists and celebrities that you mentioned emulate black culture for profit, but they don't give black people credit for creating these looks. You know, Kim Kardashian called her cornrows boderic braids, which completely dismisses the history and the originators of the hairstyle. Not to mention that Black people often face scrutiny and sometimes punishment for wearing our hair in its natural state. California became the first state to ban natural hair discrimination, and they only did that in January of this year. So that means that up until very recently, it was legal for workplaces and schools to enforce dress codes that ban locks, braids, afros, twists, and other Black hairstyles. So when a Black person can be fired from their job or kicked out of a school for wearing their hair in its natural state, and someone like Adele can get 5.1 million likes on Instagram uh, for wearing a traditionally black, traditionally black hairstyle. That's a huge problem. It's a double standard uh, that Adele never has to think about. Yeah. Well, she got all those likes, but she also got a lot of flack, man. So, so maybe, maybe she does have to think about it now. Hopefully, hopefully. And it's sad that this has to be the wake up call for her. But hopefully she takes some time to reflect, as Lisa mentioned earlier. Yeah. So as we close out, do either of you have any ideas on what might have been a more thoughtful way for Adele to have expressed a love and appreciation for Notting Hill Carnival and and the black culture she seems to appreciate more generally? Well, I well, she looks like she are... was celebrating with some other people and she could have photographed them. How about that? Exactly. Ooh, exactly. Good one. Exactly. And I I agree. I think there are a lot of vendors, jewelry makers, hairstylists, food vendors who took a huge financial hit because Notting Hill was canceled. So Adele could have used her platform to put the spotlight on them for the day. Uh, She could have featured a playlist with some of her favorite Jamaican artists instead of wearing the flag or just use that day to amplify people who work so hard to put Notting Hill Carnival together. Not that I want to assume that Adele is listening to Q, but I kind of hope she is. These are great ideas. I mean, these are these are really productive ideas for anybody who wants to to celebrate a culture, maybe without and, appropriating. And, mm. and if Adele steals them all, there's the irony, hey? What's that? <laughs> oh, oh, you said if she steals them all, there's the. <laughs> well, maybe she'll maybe she'll give you proper credit and post a picture of both of you. Proper credit. There we are. That sounds good. <laughs> well, thank you both so much for for weighing in. I really appreciate it. Thanks Bye, a lot. Everyone. Yeah. A Harmony is a freelance music journalist and a critic. And Lisa Christensen is an arts reporter and producer with CBC's On the Coast. Sound off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen, brings you in-depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests. So listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. David Tennant does a podcast with, from something else, is back for another season. David sits down virtually with the biggest names in entertainment, including Dame Judi Dench, Jim Parsons, Elizabeth Moss, and more. You'll get an inside look at these stars' lives with revealing conversations, surprising stories, and of course, lots of laughs. New episodes of David Tennant Does a Podcast With, available every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Talia Schlanger, in for Tom Power. We have been talking on the show this week about Chadwick Boseman's death. You might know him best from the movie Black Panther. He died of colon cancer at the age of 43. But he has one last movie on its way. It's a Netflix film called Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. It's an adaptation of a play from 1982 by August Wilson. You might be wondering, who exactly is Ma Rainey? Well, about 100 years ago, the hot new trend in music was the blues. This whole new wave of singers started bringing their woes to the stage. And one of the standouts was this daring, unapologetic woman who would just 
take over the room when she sang, holding a pistol in one hand and an ostrich feather in the other. That was Ma Rainey. And she became known as the mother of the blues. She was also a trailblazer for the LGBTQ community. She sang openly about her sexuality and her relationships with men and women. Alana Bridgewater starred in a production of Ma Rainey's Black Bottom a couple years ago in Toronto. She played Ma Rainey herself. And she's here to take you even further into this incredible story. Hello, my name is Alana Bridgewater, and this is my gateway to Ma Rainey. This is C.C. Ryder. I'm so unhappy. I feel so cool. I feel so sad. Ma Rainey Pritchett, Gertrude Ma Rainey Pritchett, was born in 1886. Uh, she was one of the first women, women period, to be recorded and distributed in a wide range So for the blues, she is known as the mother of the blues, and she was known to have her own caravan. She had buses, she had trains, and she was a modern-day millionaire in a man's world. This particular track was one of my selections because it is so close to the gospel realm that moves into the transition of blues. Like, just in that beginning part, it's like, you know, I'm so unhappy, I feel so sad. And in that, there's something that's really spiritual about that, whether it would continue within the church as, um, I know my Savior, He's coming back. But instead, it talks about something completely different. And so... um, It's one of the things that I really enjoy about the blues is that it it really is talking to the heart and the spirit of a people. This is Hear Me Talking to You. I really love the play in this song. Uh, if you have to run, run corners and go through hills and valleys to get to me, these are the things that you're going to need to do. And I'm not biting my tongue about it. And I just love that. It's so um, forceful and direct, and she's not taking any prisoners. You want to be my man, you got to pass it with the wind you Many of the blues artists at the time would go on stage with guns, and they'd always keep <laughs> a gun uh, in the purse or on their person because they were extremely afraid of being ripped off by producers and uh, the people that would hire them. Ma Rainey was known to be a fighter and she would face anyone that was abusive towards her with wrath and she would show them her pistol and she would let them know that she didn't care who they were they would get a stomach full of metal if they dealt with her wrong. I'm Alana Bridgewater, and you're listening to My Gateway to Ma Rainey. This song is called Prove It On Me Blues. This is 1920s, and she is talking about lesbianism. When I last night had a big, big fight, everything seemed to go The importance of this song is especially pertinent because of the time. It was the 1920s, and there were a lot of things that were happening in terms of the movement of African-American people from the South to the North. 
And women were finding that they didn't necessarily have to stay in loveless relationships or relationships with men. And they started to find sexual freedom with women. And Ma Rainey would talk about her lesbianism in a lot of her songs. But this one, it was most overt. And it was basically, I'm wearing a suit, I'm wearing a tie, I'm wearing a collar. And, but you have to prove that I'm actually having sex with women. The beauty of this song also is her um, expression and the way that she sings. It's not pretty. It's very rough and coarse, but it's so direct and you feel something. It conjures uh, the strength and the beauty of, of her life. Are you hurt the rest? Ah boy, I'm gonna show you the best. Ma Rainey's gonna show you her black bottom. This next song is called Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, and I chose it because that's the show that I'm doing. And uh, there are so many meanings to this. It's talking not only about the experience of African-Americans in the North, it's talking about the African-American male experience, and also talking about Ma Rainey herself. Ma Rainey dealt with prejudice all through her life, um, not only because of uh, being a black woman, but she was darker skinned. There was intra-racism where, you know, she wasn't fair enough to be in certain halls. When she would go into the North, um, one of the, the things that they talk about within the play is that she couldn't even catch a cab in the North. Yet she was this international star. So she always faced discrimination, but she faced it head on. And she always dealt in business, and she made it work for her. She was in charge no matter where she was. I would compare Ma Rainey uh, of yesteryear to an Aretha Franklin of, you know, the 70s, or a Beyonce of today. Uh, Someone who crosses all racial lines. They've affected so many people internationally, and they put on really great shows. That is kind of where I would place Ma Rainey in the 1920s. She was that big. And to be able to be, in that time, a woman, strong, not doing it with a man, and also showing sexuality towards women, it, it's an unbelievable path that she took. Grandpa told my grandmother, I'm Alana Bridgewater, and that was my gateway to Ma Rainey. Thanks again to Alana Bridgewater. She played Ma Rainey in a Toronto production of Ma Rainey's Black Bottom in 2018. You heard her sing just a tiny little bit in that piece. But holy smokes, if you ever get the chance to hear Alana Bridgewater sing anywhere, run, do not walk. She is voice royalty. Uh, The film adaptation of Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is headed to Netflix later this year. It will be Chadwick Boseman's final movie. Chadwick died of colon cancer last week at the age of 43. We have a couple remembrances of him up on our website. Kathleen Newman Bramang spoke to Tom Power about his legacy. And I talked to Clark Peters, who was one of his co-stars in Five Bloods, uh, about Chadwick Boseman. You can find that at cbc.ca slash Q. The summer is winding down. Oh, so are the days of swaying in a hammock with a good book, lingering over the words, nowhere to be, 
So just before that happens, we wanted to revisit Tom Power's conversation with Kaveh Akbar. We recorded this back in January of this year. Kaveh is an award-winning poet. He's also a poetry professor. He was born in Tehran, Iran, and he's lived in the U.S. since he was two. He's founded a couple of really cool things, the poetry website Dive Dapper and the poetry podcast All Up In Your Ears. I'm going to let Kaveh take over and introduce himself to you in the best possible way by reading you an excerpt of a poem. It's called Portrait of the Alcoholic Stranded Alone on a Desert Island. Here's Kaveh. I live in the gulf between what I've been given and what I've received. Each morning, I dig into the sand and bury something I love. Nothing decomposes. It might sound ungrateful to say I expected poetry, but I did. Palm forests and clouds above them, arranged like Dutch still lifes, musically colored fauna lounging in perpetual near smiles. Instead, these tumors under the surf. Wildness. To appear where you are unexpected. My favorite drugs are far from here. Kavik, could you tell us a bit about that poem? Yeah, it's from my first collection, Calling a Wolf a Wolf, which largely orbited an addiction recovery narrative, my addiction recovery narrative. And this excerpt is actually from the last poem in the book uh, called Portrait of the Alcoholic Stranded on a Desert Island. Um, And it speaks... I think, or is interested in the ongoingness of addiction, the ongoingness of recovery. You know, I'm never not going to be an addict. I'm never not going to be in recovery. Um, And I think that that ongoingness is at the center of the poetic nucleus of this poem. There's a line in it that stuck out to me. Um, It might sound ungrateful to say that I expected poetry, but I did. Yeah, I, you know, when you do something that is intensely difficult or intensely demanding you expect to be rewarded right i, I yeah. don't know why i'm speaking in the second person i expect to be rewarded you know um <laughs> like a like a sort of rat pushing the button that gives them the treat you know um i did this thing you know i i stopped i changed my life i i completely changed my life and changed my manner of living and I wasn't immediately sort of showered with manna from the heavens or, you know, I wasn't immediately handed a sack full of gold, you know. And um, and so the sort of indignity of that or sort of dealing with my erroneous sense of entitlement, you know, now that I've stopped doing this thing that was actively killing myself, surely the, the world will start rewarding me immediately, you know. Um, surely uh, I expected poetry, you know. That's, that's sort of, again, what that moment is facing. You said that you realized you wanted to be a poet back in high school. Yeah, uh, I had, as many poets and writers do, a seminal high school English teacher named Steve Henn, who recognized that I really liked reading the stuff in class and one day sent me home with a stack of poetry books. I'd never engaged contemporary literary poetry at all. And I remember the first poem, you know, that I read in the first book it was just like you know the clouds parting and an angel coming through blaring his trumpet like you're a poet you know (laughs) like that sort of shock of clarity right and um and i've never really strayed from that clarity you know that's one of the load-bearing gifts of my life was that clarity at such an early age that if this is a thing that you can do it's the thing that i want to do were you always good like do you remember the first poem (laughs) that you wrote I was absolutely not always good. I'm still, you know, I'm still very much an amateur. Um, I don't remember the first poem that I wrote because, you know, I I have, I was always interested in writing and I wrote short stories. And I think my mom has boxes of, you know, little proto-er poems that I wrote, you know, when I was three and four and this and that. But um, I do remember uh, when I was, when I was young, we lived in Milwaukee for a period of my childhood and I remember when I was in second grade, I wrote a poem called A Packer Poem about the Green Bay Packers, the football team in Wisconsin, you know. And the local newspaper published that when I was seven years old. It was called A Packer Poem. And um, and so, yeah, I, I, in that way, I kind of peaked early.
really a little bit, I guess, you know. You have such a great um, appreciation for the form. I mean, not just as a poet yourself, but obviously I can tell poetry means an awful lot to you. You, you Because you have sort of dedicated yourself to talking about it. You're a professor of poetry. You have a poetry website. You have a poetry podcast. These are all mm. things I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've even called you, heard you called, speaking of the Packers, poetry's greatest cheerleader. <laughs> what is it yeah. about talking about poetry that that what does that give you i think i'm just a kind of naturally effusive person you know i'm not particularly burdened by the level of tact that i think normal people have so i tend to to sort of wax about the things that i love best uh until people you know sort of point me in out of the room and so um and so you know poetry just happens to be the thing that i love most in the world you know if i if i really loved um call of duty or if i really love you know pottery those would be the things that i talked about all the time but it just happens that poetry is my favorite thing in the world you know it's the thing that seems the closest to magic to me that we have available to us or one of those things and um and it just it it excites me it nourishes me it sustains me and i've spent you know the past 15 or so years of my life working to con the world into letting me just do poetry full-time seven days a week and i'm sort of getting pretty close to that i got a couple of call of duty questions for you right now if you don't mind <laughs> i don't know that i'm gonna be much help yeah i got no it's 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 about a specific level and i can't get past it no oh, I, yeah. I, i'm just thinking about people who are listening to this radio show right now and you know i think you know i i, I really love <laughs> i don't i don't know them but i really kind of in my mind love everybody who's listening to this show but i'm also sure. very aware that they may say things like, I don't really get poetry. Because I'll be honest with you, Kave, I think that's probably something I said. I grew up with a mother who was one of those formative English teachers to a lot of people. Mm. Um, but I, I still had moments of like, I don't know, am I just, am I just pretending that I really like this stuff? Now, I've, I've moved sure. on, but what do you say to people who say things like that, that they don't get it? Well, I think that, you know, it's, it's like saying you don't get a sonata or you don't get a painting, right? I think that it has a lot to do with the way that poetry is often sort of taught by kind of strapping it to a gurney and, you know, autopsying it and, you know, poking at the pancreas and saying, oh, this is what makes this happen and this is what makes this happen, right? Whereas, you know, the experience of poetry to me is much more akin to just listening to, say, Ave Maria, right? I don't speak the language in which it's sung, but I can still weep when I hear it, right? Um uh, you know, poetry is there. There is emotional data conveyed in sound, right? There is. Uh, we know this from our relationship to music that doesn't have lyrics. We know this from our relationship to rhythms. You know, there are certain songs when you listen to Future, when you listen to you know Chance the Rapper or something, you might start moving your body, right? Like there, there's data conveyed in just purely sonic experience, and so I think that. You know, the the way that poetry is taught sometimes where you take this, you know, 250-year-old, 500-year-old text and you have to poke and prod it and say, okay, what does this represent? Yeah. And, you know, the moth means mother and the the doorway means grief, you know. I, and you I'm can get it wrong. I mean, that, that always blew my mind is that, <laughs> yeah. you know, I would I would write down and say, like, what does this poem mean? And I would say, I don't know, I think it means, you know, that the fact that the earth is going to die someday. And, and the teacher would be like, <laughs> nope, it's about a vase. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, no, 100%, 100%. I'm not really interested in aboutness or meaning um, in that sort of linear one-to-one way. Um, Alan Grossman says a poem is about something the way a cat is about a house, you know, and, I, and oh, I, wow. I've always been most comfortable with that idea of aboutness. Uh, if you're just tuning in, the poet Kava Akbar is here. Um, so last year you released a poem called The Palace, and you're going right. to read an excerpt from that in just a minute. But first, um, tell me a little bit about what inspired this piece. Yeah, well, you know, I am... Uh, I was born in Iran um, and am a Muslim American man who spent most of my life living in the American Midwest, right? And so um, there are ways in which the current regime has very much targeted uh, people who look like me, um, people who come from the part of the world in which I'm from, uh, people who pray like me. and um, And it's a difficult thing to just write uh, write directly about, to write experientially about, um, to merely sort of report it is to, in a poem, is to kind of reinscribe a lot of pain. You know, I think that there are reporters and there are journalists who do a pretty good job of 
merely reporting the facts. And so not merely reporting the facts, but they're reporters and journalists who do a good job reporting the facts. And um, and so I spent I have spent years actually on this sort of long poem called The Palace um, that is more kind of just orbiting the greater station and orbiting the ways in which I myself am quite privileged um, and how from the vantage point of um, my outrage and my fury, you know, or from the outrage of, um, you know, family members and friends of mine in Iran right now, um, my outrage and my fury looks quite comfortable relative to their terror, you know. Um, And does the poem, I mean, you mentioned that you've been working on this poem for years. Does it feel different reading it or reflecting on it even over the past few weeks? I mean, obviously the the situation between the U.S. and Iran, while probably not great since the 1950s, (laughs) has been been pretty awful, especially for the past few weeks. Yeah, yeah. um, Yeah, it's certainly certainly vibrating at a kind of – um, interesting new frequency these past few weeks after the sort of American uh, provocations. But I also think that it's a poem orbiting a situation that has been ongoing since long before my birth, as you say. You know, I mean, um, this is not a new phenomenon. This is something that writers and artists and reporters have been telling us about for a long time, right? For, again, decades before my birth, um, the the ways in which uh, the colonial and imperialist projects of the West have affected places in that region and human lives in that region. And so um, there's a way in which it's not new at all. Um, you know, I wrote it, obviously, long before these events ever happened, but certainly it's vibrating at a kind of interesting new frequency these past few weeks. Before you read the poem, um, I, I just want to give some clarity to the listeners. And I'm, not, I'm trying not to do my great eight poetry thing here, where <laughs> no, I say where that, no, where I that this, anything represents anything. But <laughs> I, I did find the lettuce spinner, which is something that um, mm. folks listening to this are going to hear about really quickly. Uh, I did want you to give some background on that before you read the poem. Yeah. Well, again, you know, I'm thinking a lot about how, you know, I am an Iranian-born American citizen. Um, and so my experience of life in America is quite different than say, you know, uh, a white guy who was born in Iowa or whatever. But, um, but I'm still, again, from the vantage point of their terror, you know, the terror of people currently living in Iran who are, whose lives are being actively affected by the sanctions and the riots and the, um, police brutality, uh, in many ways, catalyzed by U.S. aggression and U.S. sanctions. Um, from the vantage point of their terror, uh, my outrage, my indignity, my fury looks quite comfortable. You know, um, and I think that you know we own my spouse and I have a salad spinner in our kitchen, and it sits there, <laughs> sort of reminding me of that privilege. You know, I can't think of an item less essential to one's living than a salad spinner, right? And it just sits in our kitchen um, sort of taunting me and sort of reminding me how good I have it. Um, and so, yeah, it makes an appearance in the poem. Yeah, you're right. The idea of having a specific device just to dry, dry produce is a, is a <laughs> level of privilege that I certainly haven't considered up to this point, but I think, it, <laughs> I think you yeah. might be right. Hey, it's yeah. been great, great to talk to you. Yeah, thanks so much, Tom. Um, Kaveh Akbar's book, Pilgrim, will be out next year. And I think I think the way we're going to do this, if this is cool with you, Kaveh, is that um, I'm just going to leave it with you you reading the poem. So I'll, just, I'll say goodbye for now. Thanks a lot for joining us. Great. Thanks, Tom. This is Kaveh Akbar reading from his poem, The Palace. I have a kitchen device that lets me spin lettuce. There's no elegant way to say this. People with living hearts that could fit in my chest want to melt the city where I was born. At his elementary school in an American suburb, a boy's shirt says, We did it to Hiroshima, we can do it to Tehran. At his elementary school in an American suburb, a boy's shirt says, We did it to Hiroshima, we can do it to Tehran. The take-home trophy Roasted goat baying on the spit. A boy's shirt says, We did it to Hiroshima. We can do it to Tehran. He is asked to turn his shirt inside out. He is asked his insides out. After he complies, his parents sue the school district. Our souls want to know how they were made. 
what is owed. These parents want their boy to want to melt my family, and I live among them, palace throne, comfy, burning. I draw it without lifting my pen. I draw it fat as creation, empty as a footprint. How to live, reading poems, breathing shallow, spinning lettuce, America the shallow breath, how to live the shallow trap, America catching only what is too small to eat. The dead keep warm under America while my mother fries eggplant on a stove. I am not there. I am elsewhere in America. I am always elsewhere in America. Writing this, writing this, writing this. English is my mother's first language, but not mine. I might have said Paramjan. I might have said Khrafes. Sizzling oil, great fists of smoke, writing this. The first insect drawn by man was a locust. Art is where what we survive survives. Sizzling oil, great fists of smoke. Art, sizzling oil, art. My mother fries eggplant. The first insect drawn by man survives. Poetry is meant to be read aloud, isn't it? That was Kaveh Akbar reading his poem, The Palace. Before that, you heard his conversation with Tom Power from January. Look for Kaveh's new poetry collection coming in 2021. It's going to be published by Grey Wolf Press, and it's called Pilgrim Bell. That's it for Q, the podcast coming up on Monday. Make sure you catch Tom's conversation with the comedian and actor, and I'm a doctor, not a fool man. Jim Carrey, he'll tell you about the moment he learned he had 10 minutes to live and his super surreal new book that takes actual moments from his life in Hollywood and mashes them up with total fantasy. Happy Labor Day to you. I'm Talia Schlanger. Thanks so much for hanging out. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.